Welcome to a special out-of-sequence episode of the Membrane Labs podcast. This is Dino Cialetti, and I'm stepping in today for Art to speak with Jordan McKinney. Jordan recently wrote an interesting Medium post titled Bitcoin Security, a Negative Exponential. We'll be discussing his thesis and the concerns he has about the long-term viability of security on the Bitcoin network. We will also talk about some of the rebuttals to his concerns, as well as why he believes those arguments don't stand up to rational scrutiny. We hope you enjoy the show. Jordan, maybe do you want to give a quick introduction of yourself, who you are, what's your background, uh, how did you get into crypto, and then tell us, uh, give us a quick kind of synopsis of what your the thesis of this post was and uh, the motivations behind it. Yeah, for sure. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast, by the way. Um, so a little bit about me, I'm fourth year computer science at UVic in Victoria here, and uh, I'll be finishing in December. Um, I I started and sort of maintained the this Slack channel that we use to coordinate. Uh, it's called Vic Blockchain, and I write blog posts and spend some time on Twitter and make the occasional uh, YouTube video. And so I got into crypto like a year and a half ago or so, and um, right. So I, I read the the Bitcoin white paper and kind of went down the rabbit hole and. Pretty much since then, I've spent, you know, most of my free time learning more about crypto, and um, I'm intending to spend my career working in crypto. Um, what I'd like to do ultimately is something like, something like an analyst type position at a one of these crypto hedge funds. That'd be the ideal. Um, so, yeah. So as far as this post goes, the kind of background leading up to it was, so. I started to notice on Twitter that there was a kind of change in sentiment around Bitcoin. It seemed that Bitcoin, people were becoming more pro Bitcoin. And some people I follow, like Kyle Samani from Multicoin, he made a tweet saying, you know, he sort of, he was a bit of a Bitcoin skeptic and he was kind of changing his mind. So I decided that what I should try and do, because I had previously, I guess, been a bit of a Bitcoin skeptic as well, um, I just didn't. For, for reasons completely unrelated to what we'll talk about today, there was, there's just some things that I thought I didn't see as maybe the best design decisions. But anyway, seeing that this change in sentiment was occurring, I thought I should try to um, see things from the Bitcoin proponent point of view and steel man whatever arguments I could find in favor of Bitcoin and see if I could you know tear down my own skepticism. And so during the course of trying to do that you know part of trying to do that was just more research and just digging into you know how bitcoin works some more and that kind of thing and one of the things i came across pretty quickly was this this question of the declining block rewards and you know what happens as these block rewards go away and the role they play now and so on and so really quick like the kind of the problem is big and we'll, we'll get into this but Bitcoin security, like the security against 51% attacks in particular, that security is essentially funded by these block rewards and transaction fees, mostly the block rewards though. And the block rewards are declining. They get cut in half every four years. The next next halvening is in 2020. And so the question is how will um, the security be paid for as these decline? And how will the network remain secure as these decline? So 
as I dug into this, I found that the, I mean, this is a well-known issue. It's not like, uh, it's not like no one knows about this problem, um, but the solutions I found, I didn't think were, they didn't seem very, very good. Like the sort of the main solution is that the fees will just kind of compensate for the decline in the block rewards. And for reasons we'll get into, I, I don't know if that's, I'm not convinced that that'll work. So, okay. so anyway, I wrote this, I wrote this blog post and did, did some tweeting about it and got some good back and forth going and, um, yeah, so okay that's so, kind of where we're at now yeah, yeah. so um basically my understanding in reading the post is that your concern is that essentially the motivation for uh the providers of security or what we call the miners uh, on the bitcoin network um their motivation is their rewards in uh in bitcoin uh, through the uh, the block rewards and the transaction fees and your concern is that that's not going to be enough over time to keep them securing the network uh, or at least not at a sufficient level um, to uh, at a level that's high enough to stop somebody from being able to attack uh, the network is that kind of the the gist of it yeah pretty much yeah okay yeah like so, right now there's a certain amount of money being paid to miners and that amount of money means that they provide a certain level of hash power and that amount is looks like it's going to go down quite a bit, right? Yeah. Um, so why don't we take a couple steps back, um, just for uh, for the listeners as well to get into some of the basics? Uh, so you in in the post you describe a little bit about uh, the basics of proof of work. So why don't you um, do that for us again and now and just explain. Um, how is the Bitcoin network um, and um, how, what is proof of work and how does that uh, provide security for the network? Right. So, yeah, so Bitcoin is a proof, uses proof of work, I guess, a proof of work consensus mechanism. And it also uses a fork choice rule, which is the, it takes, so the, the, the network has to decide which, which blockchain is the canonical one. And whenever that you have this this network and it's trying to decide, or new blocks are being proposed by different different nodes in the network, you get these little mini forks. And what you want is for everyone to be on one chain. So it has this fork choice fork choice rule, and the way it decides which um, which chain is the canonical one is the it's the one that has the most work on it. Okay, and the the work part is that's the proof of work idea, and the so. The way that the miners, so when when a new when a miner is mining a block, they're they're computing, they're trying to find, they're trying to find a nonce value such that the the hash of the block header with that nonce produces a a value that's below a certain threshold, and that's the difficulty. So all these miners are competing, and they're all computing these hashes, and the first one to find a nonce value that's sufficient to produce this low hash value, they, they've essentially won that block and they broadcast it and everyone makes sure it's good and then they, that becomes a new block. Can you maybe give some background? What is a 51% attack? Let's say I had a majority of the hash power, like I had 51% of the hash power. What I could do is I could start mining on that, on that block, on block N, and I could start mining on the end of it while but not tell anybody 
about the blocks I find, and the rest of the network would continue mining on the end of block N, and they would just go along and they would have their blockchain. And then since I have 51% of the hash power, I could, it, it might take a couple blocks for this to, for this to be true, but ultimately I would have more work on my chain. And the longer we, we mine for, the more, the higher the probability that would be true would be. So I could sit there and mine on, on the end of block N and produce my version of the chain. And then at some point I could broadcast that to the network. And since I have 51% of the hash power, my chain, my version would have more work on it than the version everyone else was using. And they would then, by the protocol, um, by what the protocol says, they would switch to that version of the chain, my version, the version that I've been mining in secret, essentially, for however long. So that's one of the, and th that can be a bit disruptive because while it doesn't break any rules of the protocol, um, the network thought they were on a certain chain and then suddenly all those transactions all the way back to block N plus one are now different. Um, so that's one that's one thing you can do. Another thing you can do if you have 51% of the hash power is you can you can do a kind of denial of service attack where, I mean, that what I just described is essentially, can be the denial of service attack because I could have just been mining empty blocks that whole time. And now I can I can sit there and mine empty blocks for a week and then broadcast that whole chain and wipe out all those transactions. And I mean, the network could hard fork or something, but then I can just do it again. And right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, essentially, because you can always, your blocks are always going to be the ones uh, that have, uh, that are on the chain with the most work, because you mm -hmm. are creating more work than anybody else. Um, and therefore, you're essentially creating, you're in charge of the ledger, essentially. So you, you can put in, uh, you can also put in fake transactions, right? Um, is, is that correct? That I can also essentially create whatever transactions I want and propagate that as truth across the network. And the network would, in theory, accept that because my chain would be longer than the others. And so they would accept my transactions, um, the, the transactions that I'm putting into the blocks, they would accept those um, ahead of anybody else's or in, uh, instead of anybody else's. Is that correct? Well, I, I think the transaction the transac transactions themselves would still need to be uh, valid. At the very least, it allows you to do things like a denial of service, and you can also do things like double spend. Mm -hmm. So I could... On block N, let's say on block N, I spent a hundred Bitcoin or whatever, and bought some good, and the the person who received that hundred Bitcoin waits their six blocks, and they see yeah everything looks good, so they give me the whatever the house or whatever I bought, and then I could have secretly been mining on the end of block N, a completely different chain, or or sorry the I could have been mining on the block before I made that transaction. Right. Um, and then I could just broadcast that and then it's like it never happened, but I still got the good. Right. Essentially, you retract the transaction in a, in a way, in a sense, because yeah. you then create yeah. a new block that doesn't contain that transaction and then mm -hmm. push that through as the longest chain so that that transaction never, never occurred, which means that the person uh, 
thinks they uh, who originally thought they received that money now suddenly doesn't have that money or that Bitcoin in this case. Right. Okay. Um, so let's get back to uh, before we go deeper into that. Um, why don't we get uh, a little bit more into um, w- w- the rewards? Why are these miners doing this work? The whole idea is that miners are they're going to just be selfish, you know, self-interested entities and that we can't rely on them to, you know, do something for free or spend money securing the network just out of goodwill. So the idea was that miners would be rewarded for their work. And so the with the each time a Bitcoin block is mined, there's a block reward. Uh, right now it's 12.5 Bitcoin. And that's where the new Bitcoin, that's where all new Bitcoin have come from, is they've come from a block, uh, block reward. It started out as 50, then it got cut in half to 25, and now it's 12 and a half. And so if you happen to be the miner that wins the block, you get that, that 12 and a half Bitcoin. So miners also get whatever transaction fees were paid in that block. So if, again, if you were the, if you were the miner of the next block, you get the block reward and whatever fees were paid. And that those sources of income are the motivation for miners to do the work that they're doing. Obviously, the the assumption then uh, of any miner uh, is that the Bitcoin that they're receiving has some value. So as you described before, uh, somebody who attacks the network, sure, they can create uh, or block the network from functioning, or they can do these, uh, you know, uh, double spend um, uh, activities. But uh, what happens when when they do that? Wouldn't the network see that that's happening? And uh, potentially that would really have a significant hit on the value of blockchain uh, or sorry of Bitcoin because people wouldn't know uh, what is truth and therefore wouldn't be re- able to rely on the uh, the actions that they're taking on the Bitcoin network. So what is the why would somebody uh, attack um, the network other than, uh, you know, they, they might be able to cheat one transaction. But as soon as somebody saw that they've got enough, um, that there's one centralized person with enough hashing power to to do that that would immediately uh, kind of cause a, a snowball of some kind, uh, you know, where people would stop using the network um, because it's not, uh, it can't be trusted. Um, so, so what's the incentive for an attacker to do this? Yeah, so this was actually one of the things that uh, Satoshi outlined in the white paper was that if you were, if you had a bunch of hash power, you could, sure, you could do a double spend, but, or, but yeah, the confidence that you would, or the, the the decrease in value that you would cause to the network would probably not really make it worth your, you know, you might profit a little bit from the double spend, but if you have that much hash power, what you would probably prefer is that you use that hash power to profit from the network and you want the network to remain strong and trusted so that the value remains high and you essentially protect your investment you essentially end up with skin in the game and you you don't want to attack the network you don't want anything any um, mischief to happen because again you want the you want it, the price to remain high and for the price to remain high you need the confidence to remain high but and i think that's totally fine like that's true but the network also has to be secure against attackers who don't who aren't looking just to make a profit like the network has to be robust against 
people who would be happy to just spend money and just lose money just to see the network go down. So if we're, you know, I think a lot of people in crypto are expecting crypto to be really disruptive and to uh, displace a lot of the existing financial uh, institutions. And so there's going to be a lot of people who don't want that to happen and a lot of well-financed actors who might be willing to burn a bunch of money to destroy the thing that's displacing them. So, right. So I think the, I think Bitcoin's pretty safe against the attacker who's just trying to make a bit of profit, but we, it needs to be secure against like a nation state or, you know, a coalition of banks or even like a shorting hedge fund. Like if, if the cost to take down Bitcoin was, you know, not, if it was relatively reasonable, not too, too high, and the the market cap of Bitcoin was high enough to make this worthwhile, then what's to stop them from shorting Bitcoin and then attacking it and essentially forcing the price to go down? Right. So so the idea there being that if if I can bet on the price going down and my uh, uh, and the winnings from that bet are higher than the cost it would take to take down the network, then I'm incented to take down the network. Uh, in this particular case, or uh, your example before, a nation state or a coalition of banks that don't even care about shorting it, but really they care about how it's going to disrupt their existing status quo business. And therefore, it might be worthwhile for them to spend the money uh, in order to take down the network. Right. Okay. Let's go back to, to the miners then. As you said, the, the reason for, for mining, the reason for doing uh, this work that they're doing um, is to get rewarded. And the reason they want to do it uh, correctly, they want to maintain the network, is because they've now got skin in the game. They've they've spent money to uh, build uh, to, on hardware, on electricity, and things like that. So why don't we go into that a little bit? You've defined something called uh, that you called the security budget uh, in your post. Um, maybe define that a little bit for us. So if you imagine that a new cryptocurrency appears and it pays a million dollars a day to miners, regardless of anything, it just always pays a million dollars a day, then what will happen is obviously miners will compete to get a piece of that million dollars. And as they compete, the hash power that's being contributed in increases. And so what, what eventually happens is the, the total amount being spent by the miners should approach but never quite reach the million dollars a day, right? It, it certainly can't go above a million dollars a day because again, the total revenue that we're paying them is a million dollars a day. So they, they can't be spending more than that unless a bunch of people are losing money and that just isn't sustainable. They also can't, they won't for very long be spending too much less than a million dollars a day because if they were spending far, far less, then there's a huge margin there and other miners can enter and get some of those profits. So when you set that amount that you're paying to the miners, in this case, a million dollars a day, what you're doing is you're essentially you're setting a cap on how much they'll be spending and it's like a, a cap and an attractor so it will the amount that they're spending will get close to that amount and it will be capped by it so let's imagine the the way it, it all works out is you're paying your million dollars a day and the miners end up spending nine hundred thousand uh, dollars per day so 
the other thing you can you can rely on if things are functioning properly is that that you will get uh, close to the optimal amount of hash power that you can get for that amount of money. So if if you set your million dollars a day, minor revenue, they spend about nine hundred nine hundred thousand, let's say. Now that nine hundred thousand should translate to a a quote unquote honest nine hundred thousand dollars worth of hash power because all the miners are competing and they're always trying to get a bit more hash power because if they get a bit more then for their dollar spent, then they are earning more money. So they're all driving the hash rate up. So the result of all of that is that you set your minor revenue, your million dollars a day, and that gets you close to but a bit less than the optimal amount of hash power you can get for that amount of money. Now, right. Okay, so so essentially a rational miner will not spend more money than they're making uh, from the network in order to, to do the work that they're doing. So in theory, all the mining, uh, the cost of all the mining for the entire network uh, adds up to approximately the same amount of revenue that's being made because if there's a margin there, then more miners will come into the network in order to capture those uh, that profit. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. um, and and so this is that's what you've essentially called the security budget. Is that right? This this total amount of revenue slash total amount of cost on the network. Right, right. Because so that one million dollars a day again that det- that one million dollars a day determined how much hash power you got and how much it turned out to be nine hundred thousand dollars. Let's say, mm-hmm. and so the network now has nine hundred thousand dollars worth of hash power, and if you're going to fifty one percent attack the network you need to have you know a little more than half of the hash power and at this current rate the miners are spending $900,000 on hash power so you will have to spend $900,000 on hash power that's in the worst case which i'm i'm assuming for all of my arguments is it's the worst case mm-hmm. uh, so so yeah the that amount that you set that that minor revenue of 1 million dollars a day determined how much it cost to attack right the we set the million dollars a day. Miners ended up spending a bit less than that, nine hundred thousand. Now my cost to attack the network is nine hundred thousand. So that initial amount essentially determines the security of the network, which is why I call it the security budget. Right. Okay. So so essentially, uh, the assumption here obviously is that um, the amount it costs uh, to to do this mining is the cost to generate that amount of hashing power over time more efficient miners, they will drive out uh, the less efficient um, miners. So we're mm-hmm. making the assumption here that uh, all the miners that are active are very efficient. So uh, in order for a, a new attacker to come in, they would need to generate the same amount of uh, hashing power. And in theory, they could actually do it for less than whatever the current uh, security budget is, um, because we would at least assume that they would want to do it as efficiently as possible. Uh, so if the, even if there are any inefficient miners in the network, it just means that it's that much easier to attack the network. Yeah, and ultimately, if so it, the, the attack cost could be f- a fair bit lower because if we're assuming that the amount being spent by miners is close to the total revenue, that the mining market is efficient, then as soon as we start adding hash power, yeah, like you say, the less efficient miners are going to get knocked out and they'll be forced to quit. And 
the total hash or the hash power being contributed by them will drop. And essentially you'll just kind of your, the hash power that you control will just kind of swallow or like bacteria kind of taking over the, the mining market. It'll just kind of gradually push people out the less efficient ones until you have a majority of the hash power. Right. Okay. So the security budget, as you say, is really a worst case. This is, this assumes that if somebody wanted to attack the network all at once and they just wanted to turn on, uh, their entire mining uh, farm that they would require um, in order to attack the network, they wanted to turn it on all at the same time, that's approximately the cost of uh, generating that amount of hashing power. Uh, but as you as you say, they could also do it um, slowly. And if they added 10% uh, hashing power to the network now at a very high efficiency, or it doesn't even matter, if they just added mm -hmm. 10%, it would cause um, a split of the current revenue, um, or at least 10% of the, the revenue now being made would go to them, which means that there's less revenue for everybody else. And so some of the less efficient miners would be driven out. And if they all leave, then it reduces the total hashing power, mean, meaning that if let's assume there's 10% that leave, now suddenly you actually control more than 10% that you originally added of the network. Yeah, so in, in, the, in the best case, I think what you'd end up spending is half of the security budget to get 50, you know, 50% of the network hash power. Because right, if, if you, you took like a long-term approach to it and slowly yeah. just drove out the other miners. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Okay, so so the security budget uh, we've defined is essentially the worst case or the highest cost that an attacker could expect to spend um, in order to attack the network. Mm -hmm. and, okay. and the main point is just that the total miner revenue is, it's the same thing as the security right. budget. And it's it's a re there's a really direct relationship there, right? So uh, so essentially the point, uh, as you say, is that we we know what it'll take uh, for somebody to attack the network because we know how much revenue is being being generated, which we can assume is the amount of cost being spent. Right. We can okay. at least it's capped by it. Yeah. So where does that revenue uh, come from? We touched on it before, uh, but just to clarify, the, the miners are currently, uh, because this becomes important later on in, in your post, but the miners are currently generating revenue from two places, uh, and that's the, uh, the Coinbase reward and the transaction fees. Um, and as you said, the, uh, the, the rewards uh, are essentially new, uh, new Bitcoin that's being uh, minted at each block. And this is uh, fixed uh, into the network um, and started at, at 50 and every approximately every four years that gets automatically cut in half. Um, and we're currently at 12.5 Bitcoin per block that's being created anew plus a transaction fee. And if, if we look at the miners total revenue, how does that, um, how does that reward split? How much, how much of their revenue is coming from Coinbase reward and how much of it is coming from the transaction fee? Yeah. So as of right now, um, based on the current figures, the so the total miner revenue right now I think is about twelve million dollars a day, and the the amount earned from transaction fees are, is about two hundred thousand. So so again, as you said, the all one hundred percent of miner revenue comes from block rewards plus those transaction fees, and right now it's like twelve million dollars or so block rewards and about two hundred k in transaction fees. So it's about 98% block rewards. Okay. Um, so it's it's the overwhelming majority is from the block rewards. Okay. And and this I think brings us to 
kind of your key point um, is that if the block rewards are being halved every four years, what happens to the security of the network as that occurs over time? So the um, if I can summarize, basically what you're saying is if the reward today is 12.5 Bitcoin, but in a few years, that's going to get cut in half to 6.25 and the transaction fees are such a small portion of my total rewards, then the total revenue generated by the miners is going to get cut significantly when that happens, which means that a lot of them are going to exit from mining, which is going to reduce the total hash rate on the network and and also the security budget that you've just defined because there's less revenue to go around, which means less cost is being put into the network. Yeah, yeah, that, that's basically it, yeah. Okay, so actually I wanted to jump back, sorry, um, to one other point is that you've made in your post about uh, absolute hash rate. You kind of make the point of uh, that the total hash rate on the network doesn't really matter or that we can essentially ignore it. Why is that? Right. So yeah, the absolute hash rate is, so if you had a, imagine you had a, a cryptocurrency that had just an abs, a fixed hash rate, let's just say one terahash per second. Mm -hmm. And you might think that if the network maintained that level of hash power, that it would maintain its level of security. But Hardware keeps advancing, and whether it's ASICs or G GPUs doesn't matter. The hardware is always advancing. So, if you had a network with one terahash per second, and it just maintained that level for five years, it would be the actual security of the network would be declining um, because the hardware gets better. So, one terahash per second right now costs whatever it costs, and in five years it's going to cost a lot less. And since what we care about, the way that we prevent attacks under proof of work, is by making them expensive. So the, if the cost goes down, then the security goes down. Right. So so, so the more efficient that uh, the more efficiently we can mine, the worse it is for the security of the network, essentially. Well, if given a fixed amount of hash power, then yeah, if if we can mine more efficiently, it's worse for the security. But that's why we want. That's why the security is tr really determined by the the total miner revenue, because if if the total miner revenue is fixed, let's mm -hmm. say same network, but now it's just that the miner revenue is fixed over those five years, that should give us that should ultimately result in a constant um, attack cost, and right. therefore a constant um, absolute level of security, right? Because you're you're let's say you're whatever you're paying them, you're paying a million dollars a day. That gets you a certain hash rate right now, but as hardware gets better and miners compete, the, the actual absolute hash level will go up. And despite the fact that that hash level is rising, your actual security is constant because the cost to attack is constant, and that's what matters. Right. Okay. So we've established the uh, that we can look at revenue as a proxy for the security in terms of the cost to attack the network. We've also established that at least the way that Bitcoin is structured, the, the revenue that goes to the miners reduces over time in terms of the block reward. So we can maybe talk about some of the 
some of the rebuttals uh, from people maybe saying that it's not a problem. Uh, you've outlined quite a few of them in your paper, but uh, do you want to give us a quick run through of what they are and then maybe we can dig into a few of them? One of the potential solutions is that, okay, block rewards are getting cut in half. Um, we don't want our security budget to decline. We Let's say we want it to stay the same. So then if block rewards get cut in half every four years, but Bitcoin price doubles in that same cadence every four years, then we could end up with a constant minor revenue and a constant security budget. And, you know, maybe that's okay. My argument is that it's definitely not okay because I think, I mean, I think this is almost self-evident that the, the security of a network needs to be, it needs to be some percentage of the value of the network. So if it costs you a million dollars to destroy a network that's worth a hundred million dollars, whether that's by market cap or, or uh, volume or something, whatever whatever you use, if it costs you, let's say a million dollars to destroy some a network worth a hundred million, maybe that's okay. That gives you like a 1% this security factor is what I'm calling it. But if you had a network worth a hundred billion and you can destroy it for $1 million, that's probably not okay because there's we mentioned some of the reasons earlier, but there's plenty of reasons why people would want to destroy something valuable. You know, there's there's always opponents. Every time you have a system where there's some people who are doing well in it, there's there's others who want to take it down and who will spend money to do so. So I think that any of these networks need to maintain some kind of security factor. So let's say it's 10%. Let's say 10% is adequate. That's currently what approximately what Bitcoin has because Bitcoin's market cap is about a hundred billion cost to attack is about 10 billion. And I have a link in my piece that breaks that down. But so if we assume that 10% is adequate, then great. Then if the Bitcoin network increases in value because price rises and it becomes worth, um, you know, a hundred trillion dollars, then it would cost 10 trillion to attack. And maybe that's fine. Certainly, if it if it went up to a hundred trillion and it still only costs you ten billion to dis- to attack the network or to destroy the network, then that would probably not be good. So, the reason this is relevant is the one of like I said, one of the arguments is that right that the rising price will sort of take care of this problem of declining block rewards. But if the price were to double, let's say when the next ha- halving happens. The, so the block reward halves and minor revenue roughly halves, but then the price doubles. So now you have the same security budget, the same cost, absolute cost to attack the network, but the value of the network has doubled. So now your security factor has cut, been cut in half. And the security factor can only get so low. I, I think there's some point where if, Whatever the network is worth, if that factor gets low enough, if it's if it's worth whatever it is, and I can attack it for a tiny fraction of that value, then at some point that becomes someone will do it. It just becomes it's too dangerous. Right. It just becomes too uh, tempting to attack mm-hmm. it, whether for uh, the reasons we outlined before or purely just um, you know a, a bad actor that uh, wants to have some fun and and attack it. And so the the bigger that kind of 
gains is or even the brag factor or whatever you want to call yeah. it becomes the more tempting uh it is uh, to actually uh, take that leap and and try right Makes so sense. yeah and then i'd say the main so maybe i'll mention a few of the ones that are less um that are kind of fringe solutions to this problem and mm-hmm. then maybe we'll go back to the so the the solution that i think the bitcoin community is essentially 100 percent behind or is expecting to be the solution is the fee market they're expecting that the fees will just take care of this either the current levels will be, will be good enough or that they'll the total fees will rise rapidly and it'll it'll take care of this problem um, but there's a few other solutions that i saw that are less popular and i don't think work at all um, there's one called dominant assurance contracts the basic idea is that I have some interest in the Bitcoin network remaining secure. And so what I do is I pledge, um, say, 0.1 Bitcoin into a contract. And as long as a minimum threshold is met, let's say 10 Bitcoin, then the miner of the next block will get that 10 Bitcoin. So, you know, a bunch of us have interest in the network being secure. So we all chip in and the miners are rewarded through this this means and i mean i don't that seems pretty bad to me it's essentially you get a tragedy of the commons like no everyone wants it to be secure but no one wants to pay so you know like i don't think we can rely on people just donating uh to secure the network and who knows whether even if you could get some people to do that like who knows if it'd be enough we we need there needs to be a pretty high level of um you know, there would need to be a pretty high level of total payment for us to be confident that security will be maintained. Mm-hmm. Uh, and along the s- similar lines, like I saw some people say, you know, people will just mine. Um, essentially, people will mine at a loss or they'll mine kind of for free because the network is so valuable or people just see that it's important. And I mean, I don't, I don't really know if I need to refute that too much. It seems pretty... It's the same thing, right? It's tragedy of the commons. Um, and again, the yeah, sure, some people might mine for free and mine for fun. Um, but if it's 20 people mining on like with their old ASICs, this doesn't matter. It's essentially, you may as well have nothing because it, it needs to be, there needs to be a very large barrier to attack. So if we need a large security budget, so miners need to be expending whatever, $10 million a day. And you're never going to get that from charity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, another solution is proof of stake. Now, this is how I don't know. I don't know, understand proof of stake well enough to say exactly like how low you could get the issuance to be, um, or whether in in the Casper uh, FAQ. They do say that you could, in theory, achieve zero issuance, high security with zero issuance under proof of stake. Uh, I don't know whether that's, and again, this is proof of stake is uh, totally theoretical right now. But all that aside, I don't think the Bitcoin community really has any chance of moving to, toward proof of stake. Right. They so seem. Just to, sorry to cut you off, just to, to clarify for the listeners. 
essentially proof of stake is another security mechanism as opposed to proof of work. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that in, under proof of stake, uh, the security is not by how much work or computing power you put in, but rather how much of the actual coin itself of the currency that you lock up as a stake in the network. So it's essentially fixing your skin in the game. The idea being that if I'm willing to lock up a certain amount of money, then I'm unlikely to be willing to do anything negative because it means I will lose that money. Right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And and the reason you brought up Ethereum is because the goal uh, of Ethereum at the moment is to move from a proof of work uh, system, which it's on right now, to proof of stake in the future under the upgrade, which is called Casper. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and and as, like I said, as as far as the way things look right now, um, the Bitcoin community seems pretty strongly against proof of stake. They they seem to think that proof of work is the only consensus mechanism that can work, and may, maybe not all. I shouldn't say all all Bitcoin people believe this, but uh, it it seems that the Bitcoin community is quite tightly um, married to proof of work. Sure. And and I think that also it's beside the point in the in the sense that the thesis you're putting forward is that the current structure of Bitcoin is flawed. And therefore, if the network does get changed to a proof of stake system, then Bitcoin is no longer the Bitcoin it is today, in which case your current thesis may not necessarily apply anymore or need to apply under that system. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if like I think maybe proof of stake could solve this problem. Um, but my biggest concern with Bitcoin is that I just don't think that they're, uh, willing and ready to, like, they're not even, I don't think that that there's any active research on proof of stake for Bitcoin. And if, if Bitcoin was actually going to move to proof of stake, they would need to do a serious amount of research. Like the Ethereum people have been working on it for God knows how long, like four years or something, or at least a couple of years. So if Bitcoin was going to move to proof of stake, they would need to be doing that research now because if the cost to attack trends downward and the, the security factor trends downward, then it's there's kind of a fuse on this, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so if proof of work was going to save the day, like research needs to start right now. You can't start doing this when attacks are happening. If attacks start happening and there's no like immediate solution, then that's it confidence is destroyed and i think that's you know it's pretty much no going back after that sure so uh, i i tend to agree with you i can't uh, imagine a world uh, or a situation where the existing uh, bitcoin uh, community would be willing to move to a proof of stake system uh, there's also defense mining which maybe you can touch on what that is yeah so i think the idea here is just that if the network was under attack that maybe miners would be willing to mine at a loss in an effort to protect the network. And I don't know, this. I think this could work in a limited scope. Like it all depends on how well financed the attacker is. If, you, if you're up against an attacker who you have reason to believe can attack for a year, then I think what miners would end up doing is probably cutting their losses and just exiting. Um, because like, if I'm a miner, I might say, okay, should I mine at a loss? This guy's attacking the network. Should I keep mining at a loss? Like I'm losing money every day I mine in. Mm -hmm. 
And again, this is a tragedy of the commons though, because I want other people to mine, but I got bills to pay, you know, like I don't want to keep mining and losing money every day. I would rather just quietly turn off my machines and let other people mine and try and hopefully save the network. And this gets worse the longer the time frame is because even if I have a huge, even if I have like millions of dollars invested in this network and I'm like, no, I really want this network to survive, then if the, if I think the attacker is really well funded and I think, well, geez, man, it might be a year. I might have to mine at a loss for a year before this guy runs out of money. Then it just becomes, you just start getting blood out. Yeah, well, I think the the concern from my side uh, in that case would be that if there was somebody attacking the network uh, with a significant amount of hash power, let's let's say at fifty one percent, even if there are a large group of miners that are willing to try and defend uh, the network, the weaker ones are going to drop out first. And as you have just a few drop out, suddenly the attacker now controls more, has a, mm-hmm. an even larger uh, hashing power right, uh, as, as a proportion of the network. So uh, that means that they're even stronger, causing even more, causing the losses to the remaining mi- miners to be even higher, so they drop out. And so you get this cumulative effect that, that snowballs along as, as the weakest miner drops out, it causes the case to worsen right. for the next miner in, in that chain. So that, that would be my concern, is not necessarily that there aren't a bunch of miners willing to defend at a loss, but that it becomes harder and harder for them as the less efficient or the weaker miners exit. Of course, one of the other arguments is, oh, well, the problem you're talking about is decades away because the block rewards continue. Yes, they get half, but they only run out uh, somewhere in, what's it, 2140, which which is true. But if I can summarize there, I think the, the point is, it's having every every four years or so on its way to that. So so four years before 2140, it's still essentially zero. It's kind of this reverse compounding effect where we're very, very close to zero a lot sooner than 2140. Right, yeah. So this one, I think, is one of the worst arguments that I've heard. And I've actually heard it a fair bit, which is kind of scary. That, oh yeah, this isn't a problem until like, 2140 or this isn't a problem until for like 40 years or something and yeah like you say the and the reason i named the piece or i use the the negative exponential in the piece is because the block rewards follow a negative exponential and one of the things about negative exponentials is they decline really fast and then they're almost zero forever after that so if you like there's a chart that i linked in the or that I have in the piece, and it shows the block rewards, and they're just this like, there's this rapid, super steep downward curve, and by the time you get, you know, say, two or three halvenings from where we are, um, four or five at the latest, so, you know, once you're like 20 or 30 years out, you're basically at zero. Like, you, you can't even tell on the graph whether it's actually zero, or whether it's somewhere above zero. So, yeah, to give some numbers, like, right, in two years, they're they're down 50%, which is a lot. Uh, in 10 years, they're down 88%. In 14 years, they're down 97%. So after 14 years, you know, that's, they're, they're pretty low after that. 
So it's the problem is definitely not a hundred years away. I would say it's uh, in in a sense it's two years away. That's the next happening. Uh, whether the levels will be high enough, then we don't know. But the other thing is too is this is Bitcoin's supposed to be a long term store of value. So if I'm looking for a long term store of value, I want like the the foreseeable future to be secure. So if the problem was say say it's not a problem for 20 years, still if if I'm looking for a long term store of value, I can project into the future and see oh in 20 years this there's a real problem here. So the other thing too is if there's a problem 20 years ahead, then the logical thing to do is to get out before it's a problem, right? But then that that recedes backward. And from from like a game theory point of view, it, it, you're trying you're trying not to be the last person holding the bag, right? And if you think there's an exit point up ahead, though you try to get out before that and it pushes it back and then the logical thing to do is to exit now. Right. So this kind of leads into some of the other arguments, uh, like the argument of prices will rise to match, which you've kind of touched on before. But even if we say, okay, the problem's decades away, but then, as you noted, the next problem is in two years from now, where the rewards to miners, uh, or at least the block rewards to miners, gets cut in half. And so you said something along the lines of, well, even if the levels are high enough to support it then, but what levels are we talking about? Because if we're talking about price, then we run in, uh, you know, the price of Bitcoin or the the transaction fees. Uh, those are essentially the only two things that can support the work that the miners are doing. And if it's a price topic, then we run into exactly the problem that you described earlier, the security factor in the sense that, okay, so yeah, sure, let's assume price doubles uh, when, uh, when the block rewards get cut in half. But now your total value of the network has essentially stayed the same but your cost to attack it uh, has been cut in half. Sorry to cut you off, but <laughs> the if the price doubles, then the, the total net network value doubles, but the cost to attack has stayed the same, right. but then the security factor is halved. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So uh, that kind of covers the, the side of, okay, uh, uh, the assumption that prices will rise. Maybe touch on, I think, the biggest defense, which is, okay, forgetting about price, transaction fees will go up so that that, that piece that you, you touched on earlier, which currently makes up about 2% of the rewards to miners, of the revenue for miners, uh, that that will increase sufficiently to make up the difference. So w what's the problem with that? Yeah, so... Again, like I said, this is kind of the main, I think this is the main argument that, and I, I got a response from, well, from some, from various Bitcoin people. And most of them seem to think that the transaction fees was, was the solution. And one possibility is that the fees remain roughly constant with, or the, the proportion, the fees in proportion to market cap remains constant. So right now, you know, transaction fees are about $200,000 a day. Um, let's say that that amount was representative of the, the sort of the true rate. And then if, if market cap doubled, then that would double. So then you get a certain uh, fee-only security factor. And there's a, there's a possibility that the fee-only security factor is adequate to um, protect the entire network. So like that's possible, I suppose, but it's the 
the security factor that you get from the fees is really, really low. Like, again, it's 2% of what we have today. So I'm not, I'm highly skeptical that that, that level is enough. And I think most people are. But then, like you said, the, the other possibility is that while fees rise rapidly and they rise faster than the uh, value of the network, faster than the market cap. Now, I don't, like, that could happen, um, but I don't see any reason to believe that it will. Uh, something I'm working on right now, which will probably be another post, is um, plotting the, the trend, total transaction fees paid to market cap ratio. So plotting that transaction fee only security factor over time. And I've done it for the entire history of Bitcoin. And what you see is there's this base level that stays pretty much constant over the entire Bitcoin history. And except during, during the really bearish like buying frenzies, it spikes up. So you get this essentially fixed constant baseline with these spikes. But it always returns to this baseline. So it looks to me like the total transaction fees paid will go up or down in proportion to the market cap of the network or the, the total value of the network. So in that case, all we can expect is the transaction fee security factor to stay constant. Now, the argument that, like I said, that some people are making is that the the amount being paid in, in terms of fees would rise rapidly and rise faster than market cap. And again, I just don't see any reason for this happening. We don't have any empirical evidence that it should happen because, like I said, the, the relationship appears to be constant. Um, and one of, one of the things people say is that, okay, when... As the block rewards go down, the fees will rise sort of to to make up that difference. And I think this I think this misunderstands the way that the mining works. Because for one, miners are always trying to pay as little as they can, no matter what. Sorry, you mean users. So Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. Users are, are always trying to pay as little as they can. And even if like even if I was sending a million dollars and I'd be happy to pay a hundred dollar fee for that, if I only need to pay five cents and I'll get uh, my transaction will be mined in the next block, then why would I pay more than five cents? There was even a transaction a while ago for I don't know what it was. It was like ten billion dollars and they paid like thirteen cents to in transaction fees. So my users are always trying to pay as little as they can, and then miners. It's it's a competitive landscape of miners, and if like imagine the the miners were going to try to enforce a higher total transaction fees earned, maybe they would try to enforce a minimum transaction fee. Like they say, okay, let's all agree to only accept transactions if the fee is whatever a dollar. The problem with that is. Anyone can be a miner, and what I could do as a selfish miner is I could go in there and sim simply accept all 
transactions that I can, sorted high fee to low fee, um, take which as many as I can today, fit in a block. Right? Yeah, which is this is what this is how mining works right now. And if I do that, I'm going to make the most possible money that I can. Now, if you're a miner who's trying to enforce that high minimum fee, you're making less money because you're going to take the the transactions sorted high fee to low fee, but you're going to chop off the bottom, whatever bottom half that don't meet your minimum fee requirement. So miners who try to do this and enforce this higher fee are going to just be losing money. And again, it's another tragedy of the commons because miners could all say, yeah, this is better for us if we enforce this high fee. So let's all do it. And then a bunch of them do it, but then I just want to try and make as much money as I can. And I hope they continue to enforce high fees, but I don't want to because I want to make more money. So I don't see any way that miners can actually enforce higher fees. But let's say that everybody is now enforcing a, a minimum fee of X. And as you say, like anybody can be a miner. So I come in and say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to take all the other transactions. But unless I have a, a massive, a, a sufficient amount of hashing power, I'm never going to move my blocks, right? Uh, or I mean, mm -hmm. my blocks are never going to be the blocks getting uh, getting into the, the chain. So uh, doesn't that still hold that if the biggest miners are enforcing uh, a certain minimum fee, then that will still be the case for the most part. Right. And that, that, I mean, it could work, but you just get a tragedy of the commons on a bigger, on a different scale. So if there's like, let's say there's just four big miners and which isn't too far from the truth and they, they agree to enforce a high minimum fee then, I mean, it has a way higher chance of succeeding because there's less parties to coordinate. But again, if I'm one of those four miners, I'm, I'm still tempted to just mine with all of the, just not enforce the low fee or the minimum fee, mine all the transactions, make more money. Okay, but but and, sorry to interrupt you again, but this assumes that there's n insufficient transactions, right? Like uh, your argument against it. Uh, I mean, if there's... If there's more transactions than can fit in the block, then the likelihood of people being willing to pay the, the minimum fee or just the likelihood that there's sufficient transactions with that minimum fee are quite high. Right. So I think ultimately the, the amount that users are willing to pay is driven by that user side demand. And that if miners do something like enforce a minimum fee or restrict the block size, thereby effectively restricting the supply then it doesn't it doesn't force the total amount earned upward all it does at best is um, increase the price per transaction paid mm -hmm. right so let's say we reduce the block size a great deal and there's still some uh, user side demand then the price per transaction could go up because there's some users who really want their their transaction to be mined. Like the person who sp sent a $10 billion, if you restricted the block size a lot, they would, I mean, they'd probably pay $100 to get that transaction in. But there's a bunch of people who wouldn't be, right? And so the total amount that you're going to earn, there's no reason that restricting that supply is going to force the, the total revenue from fees upward. But the price per uh, transaction could definitely go upward. 
Right. Okay. So at the end of the day, I mean, what it comes down to is that no user is going to do a transaction with a fee higher than the value that they're getting from being able to do that transaction. And so by any kind of minimum fee, all it does is drive out users because it essentially forces the network to only retain the users willing to pay that higher price, or it incentivizes some miners to, you know, it, it's the prisoner's dilemma uh, situation, uh, essentially, that if the if the blocks are not being filled, then a miner is incentivized to fill it with other transactions because they just make more money than if they left it empty. Right. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, that's essentially kind of takes care of the transaction fees. One, one thing that we can touch on briefly maybe is there were issues uh, at sometimes during Bitcoin's evolution where people were complaining about it not being able to scale, right? Um, there was just too many transactions in the network. There was long wait times for transactions to be confirmed. And so a lot of solutions were being explored or are being explored for how can we scale the network? Because obviously the main proponents, the biggest proponents of Bitcoin want it to be a global financial system, essentially, uh, that is used by everybody for most, if not all of their day-to-day transactions. Now, I see an interesting kind of irony here in that when we look at some of the solutions, for example, Lightning Network, where the transactions or some transactions are essentially bundled off-chain so that the number of transactions that are on-chain is decreased uh, without losing the actual uh, usefulness for the user. But the problem there, uh, I find, runs into exactly what you've been describing here, is that if we increase the scalability and and increase the amount of transactions that can occur off-chain while still maintaining the security of that, that particular transaction, it decreases the demand for transactions on chain, which further compounds the problem of having sufficient demand for value uh, for transactions for the miners. Yeah, what ha- the way things would shake out when you have something like Lightning Net- Network that's being used at scale, I'm not sure because, yeah, like you say, having Lightning Network certainly takes some sort of the pressure off of the um, transactions being included in blocks. So it seems like it would reduce the demand for that block space. That seems pretty clear. But on the other hand, maybe the existence of Lightning Network would increase the overall usage so much that it would maybe the um, on-chain uh, demand for that s- transaction space, maybe it would remain constant or maybe it would increase. So just, again, uh, to clarify, the way uh, I understand Lightning to work is essentially a channel needs to get, uh, there's essentially two transactions that occur on chain. And between those two transactions, it allows for multiple transactions to happen off chain. So essentially, you're you're opening a channel uh, with one transaction, and then a number of transactions can occur uh, within that channel. And then the essentially the balance of those transactions uh, then gets recorded as a separate, uh, another transaction on chain to close that loop uh, so that you can do a big bundle of transactions all together and it only requires two on-chain transactions to be published. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, so there's a transaction you make when you open the channel and you, like you say, you make a bunch of transactions and then you make a, a on-chain transaction to close it. So whether with the existence of Lightning, 
like the most obvious effect is that you need way fewer on-chain transactions. But if the amount of, if Lightning resulted in just a huge number of people using Bitcoin, then maybe maybe it would work out the same because you have all these channels opening and closing. But that to me is that's not at all a given mm-hmm. that that would be the case. Yeah. And even if that were the case, and let's say the on-chain demand stayed the same, then we're still f- uh, stuck with the question of whether the on-chain or the transaction fee revenue is adequate to pay for the security of the whole network, which is not at all obvious to me, considering it's, we only know that Bitcoin is secure at the current levels, right. where it costs you know, 10 billion to attack, and it's got this 10% roughly security factor. With fees only, it goes down, that security factor decreases a lot. And we have, there's no, we have no evidence that, that it'll, it will be secure at those levels. And we don't even know what levels it needs to have to be secure, which is pretty scary. Right. Okay. So <laughs> we touched on a number of solutions or responses there. And at least based on this discussion, none of them seem to be a given, which is exactly the point you're trying to make is to say there is this problem. And right now, there's no good uh, solutions that are in the foreseeable future. Now, just kind of uh, to touch on a, a bit of a thought experiment, if we assume that Bitcoin reaches a higher adoption level um, such that there's everybody is using it, would it not be feasible to imagine a situation where you do kind of have, rather than having three or four huge mining operations, could it be feasible to almost imagine uh, a situation where there's essentially mini miners installed as part of your fridge and part of your water heater and part of everything else so that you've got uh, lots and lots and lots of these little miners ubiquitous uh, around the world uh, and in everybody's homes that are essentially securing the network and they're not there to make a profit they're they're costing money but uh, in the same way that you pay bank fees or you know transaction fees today you're essentially paying you know this uh, the cost of what it costs to mine to secure the network is that something that's feasible at all um i don't know i think again you you hit a tragedy of the commons pretty quickly like if we decide that okay bitcoin is just so important and proof of stake is just not cannot possibly be made to work ever and we need to rely on proof of work and, you know, Bitcoin is essential for our, the functioning of our economy. So we decide we're all going to do our part. And because that's what we'd be doing, right? If, if, we, if we put miners in all of our appliances, and that means you're paying extra electricity cost to secure the world's, you know, financial backbone. And you have a tragedy of the commons problem there. Like, I don't really want to pay the extra electricity cost, not to mention the extra cost of you know the appliance itself costs more money to manufacture now so i'm paying some premium in order to do my part and that's not a very good solution the other thing too is if you if you did that like if we put little miners into appliances for one they're like appliances are upgraded very rarely so those miners are going to be very inefficient. If they start out producing high hash power per uh, dollar of electricity spent, which is kind of an optimistic case, because it costs money to produce hardware that 
outputs a high hash rate, right? But even if you produce the fridge with a really good A9 or whatever Antminer thingy in it, then in a few years, it's, it's no longer producing very much hash power at all. So now that $10 a month or $10 a year you're spending in electricity is producing even like a very small amount of hash power. So right. I was actually thinking more the other way around. So I, I'm definitely not thinking about a, an A9 chip or, you know, something that's uh, generating 30, 50 or 100 uh, mega hashes. I'm, I'm really thinking about something tiny. Like, let's imagine a uh, something that's mm -hmm. generating, you know, one uh, one mega hash of, of hashing power. But there's hundreds of millions of them around the world because it's just part of how you pay for uh, your electricity, it's connected, uh, it's generating the security, but it's also then part of the system that is doing these micropayments between uh, your, uh, you know, for your fridge, for your electricity provider, for uh, to heat your furnace, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that's all being tracked. And, and it's being essentially, it's essentially a requirement in the same way that you pay fees today, your fee becomes the, the miner that you have running. And if it's not running, then your fridge doesn't work. Uh, or you don't get provided with electricity from your provider or, you know, whatever the cases are. Yeah. I mean, there, I think there's a lot of problems with something like that. Sure. One is just that it's it's really hard and it just seems kind of bad mm -hmm. to try and enforce something like that, that everyone needs to use an approved appliance that has this chip. And we are going to have to pay the cost for the of that chip. And it is going to require more electricity. So we all have to do our part and pay this tax. Again, it's a tragedy of the commons. Is If we have a free market of products, then people are going to use ones that are a bit cheaper and don't have the chips. But even so, if you have a really small, like what miners, are, what mining hardware is trying to do is optimize for hash power per uh, dollar of electricity spent. Right. So those A9 miners are some of the most efficient the most, the lowest dollar per hash power you're going to pay is in something like one of those dedicated, uh, big, expensive miners. If you mine with a little chip that has, you know, passive cooling and is super small and has a small power draw, it might cost you very little to run, but the hash power per dollar of electricity that you're getting is actually really, really low. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be spending whatever, $10 a year for what is effectively like a cent worth of hash power if you were to get that hash power from a good chip or like a good machine, you know, like an A9. So, and again, the problem, so then if, if you're only really contributing one cent of true hash power and the the whole point of all of this is to make attacking expensive. So the the dollar equivalent of hash power produced needs to be high. Then, you know, you're not really solving the problem, right? You're spending $10 a year to produce like a penny worth of hash power. A bunch of people are doing this. But in aggregate, they're spending a huge amount of money to produce a relatively small amount of hash power. And if, if they're generating a million dollars worth of honest hash, like true hash power, like the, you know, from the attacker's point of view, then, okay, then we have a million dollars worth of hash power. We, you know, yeah, we may as well have just taxed people 
Like, I think it would make more sense just to, if we were going to go down this route to just tax people and then fund some fund miners, right? Oh, just man. pay the miners. They'll get the, the maximum hash power they can. And, and then we're right back to where we are now. Right. Really. Exactly. Yeah. But that's kind of where I was trying to go with that question is to mm. kind of play out this scenario where, you know, I've seen people coming up with ideas of, oh, you know, we're creating a heater for your home yeah. that is yeah. also a miner because it creates its own heat. Uh, and so it contributes to that, but you're also getting mining capacity out of it. And I was trying to play that concept out of, okay, what if Bitcoin is ubiquitous and we come up with all of these uh, ideas of how to integrate more mining capacity? Does that actually mm -hmm. play out? And, and is it worth it? Because, you know, what if, okay, we're not trying to make money from it, but it's just a cost of having the heater, which reduces the, although we're paying costs there, we're reducing the, the fees that we're paying somewhere else uh, or to an, a different third party. And as you've just described, that that could play out, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense because at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've got a higher uh, security budget, even if it is heavily ubiquitous everywhere because somebody can come along with a very efficient mm -hmm. miner and create that same level of hash power with significantly less cost in order yeah. to attack the network. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's why it all comes down to the miner revenue. Mm -hmm. Like that's where the security, and that's why I'm using the term security budget because yeah. the security really does directly come from how much is being paid to the miners. It's not the number of miners. It's not the absolute level of hash power. It's not, you know, if, if every device everywhere in the world's mining a little bit, again, doesn't matter. What matters is the cost to attack. So therefore what matters is how much is being spent in mining. Right. So, yeah. Okay. So I think we've dug into this pretty deep here. Essentially what I, I, I want to just sum up kind of the main uh, core problem here is that overall something that could really take down the Bitcoin network is a 51% attack. A 51% attack happens when somebody can control 51% of the hashing power uh, on the network. And one way that we can judge how, what it'll take to do that is looking at the revenue generated for miners because the revenue is a cap on the cost that they are putting into the network in order to mine. And so if we know how much revenue is generated by miners, we know approximately uh, how much it would cost for somebody to generate exactly that amount of hashing power. And that said, when we look at the way Bitcoin is structured today in terms of how the revenue to miners uh, occurs through block rewards and transaction fees, and we know that block rewards are deflationary. So over time, there's uh, less and less uh, reward going to the miners, and that's fixed in the network. Then this creates a number of problems which lead to a lower revenue to miners on the network, causing what you've called the security budget to go down so that over time it costs less and less for an attacker to, to attack the network. And even if some of these other things were to happen, like transaction fees going up or, or just the price of Bitcoin going up, it doesn't actually help because it just increases the security factor as you've uh, described it it increases that gap so it decreases the percentage of cost to attack the network relative mm -hmm. to the total value of the network is that yeah. pretty much summing up the point have i missed something no yeah that's pretty much it okay um, yeah the right. minor revenue is going down and therefore the cost to attack is going down and 
none of the solutions seem very good to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't see any reason why we should expect fees to to rise to, uh, you know, at least not very much. And none of the other solutions seem to make sense. And yeah. All right. So when do you expect that we'll start to kind of see the, I guess, the, the cracks showing uh, or, or an attack? Right. So I don't know. Obviously, I don't know. But uh, the I don't think that I'm not sure that we'll see an attack. Uh, I think what's more likely is that there are people talking about this. Like when I posted this on Twitter and even before writing this post or anything, I I saw this problem and tried to get an answer. So I was bugging people on Twitter and I didn't get much response, but I did see some people who were sort of echoing the same concern. And after doing a little, I did a tweet storm and when I posted this post, the blog post, and there was some good discussion. And one of the things I noticed was there there does seem to be a fair number of people who are really digging into this problem. Like I, I ran a, I was talking to this someone on Twitter. Uh, I don't know if I have their handle or anything, but they wrote a post basically making this a similar point to mine, except they focused more on the the fee market solution, and they talked about a, a bunch of points that I hadn't even thought of that also um, kind of argue against the fees being a solution to the problem so and in doing this tweet storm i i found a few more people on twitter who were you know making the same argument so it seems like people are aware of the problem and that it's getting more exposure now um so i what i think is more likely i don't i don't know if anyone's going to spend the money to attack bitcoin right now i don't really i can't imagine who would like, I don't think Bitcoin's big enough for a nation state to really spend the resources to try and kill it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think is more likely is that people just continually point this out and the, you know, the community and the market starts to see that this problem doesn't really have a solution, or at least not a good solution. Um, I think that, I think we could see the market respond like, I think, I don't know, I think it's pretty clear, given this problem, and given, like, Ethereum, I don't want to make this Ethereum versus Bitcoin, but the fact that Bitcoin is being valued higher with a problem this substantial, uh, to me, shows that the market isn't aware of this problem. Exactly. Because, yeah. right, like, I, I don't think, and this isn't even, a, it's not like I'm, I'm not trying to attack Bitcoin here, and certainly not Satoshi, <laughs> like the contribution that Satoshi made is to the world is just incredible. But I think this is just a problem with proof of work, like proof of work and a deflationary issuance. I just don't think there's any way you can really make that work without depending on fees and that, that has a bunch of problems. I think, and actually, you know, what's funny is uh, after doing this tweet storm, someone I think tweeted at me or I saw their tweet, they were quoting Vitalik and Vitalik made this exact point in 2016, like almost in like two sentences. Yeah, I saw that. Summed up my, yeah, my whole argument, like this, you get this lower and lower uh, cost to attack and, you know, there's no reason to think that the cost to attack we arrive at will be high enough and it's super high risk. So in his view, 
all proof of work cryptocurrencies have this problem and the the only the solution that they're going towards at least is proof of stake yeah so, i think he even uh, said you made a point about what he's not willing or he would not be a proponent of capping issuance at this stage until mm -hmm. they've kind of solved this problem yeah so i think if anything happens i think the market might just adjust and uh but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, my guess would be that if we don't see it sooner, the next halving uh, in two years from now will shed some light because uh, we'll mm -hmm. have to see something occur at that point. And as you say, even if the market responds sooner, that would be that response has to be kind of has to be in a downward direction on, on price, right? Yeah, I mean, you could imagine that like we could get another bull run where the interest in cryptocurrencies goes way up and everything goes up and um, like you, you could, there's lots of ways it could play out. Right. I think, I think the total market cap of the various cryptocurrencies depends almost entirely right now on the hype cycle and on the speculation. So that is super hard to predict. Like I wouldn't be surprised if Bitcoin six months from now was, you know, $50,000. Right. Um, but I would say that the, the relative, um, the rel the relative ordering of them, if if Bitcoin is still higher in six months than Ethereum, then in my opinion that would be, I just don't see how that's rational. I don't. I would say that's a failing of the market. Mm -hmm. I think it's. I think we're just too early, and people, you know, there's there's not a lot of deep. The average investor isn't doing a lot of deep consideration and looking into all these problems and sure yeah i i would agree i don't think we we don't know the value of pretty much all of these cryptocurrencies is not established yet mm -hmm. and so all all the values in my opinion today are speculative and at some point they'll need to even out even if it's just so that we get to a point that we want to get to which is uh, adoption and, and use of of these currencies outside of pure buy and sell speculation it needs to be less volatile and in order for it to do that it needs to find an equilibrium price and that's the point where we'll see these things play out as to things like your your article on uh you know whether it's secured enough at whatever that equilibrium price is okay i think we've pretty much beaten this uh, horse to death so i want to say uh, thank you for uh, coming on the show and it sounds like you'll be diving even deeper into some aspects <laughs> of this in the near future so we'll uh, we'll probably see some more articles on the topic if you like maybe we can have another have another podcast to to go into that and see if there's any new insights that come out of that uh, and of course if there's any listener questions that come out of this then we can touch on those at the same time anything else any closing words or messages or notes that uh, you want to touch on that we haven't yet um no i would just i would point people toward uh the like if if there's any objection to the arguments i've made I'd be happy to hear them, honestly happy to hear them. And if I'm wrong, I'd be, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be shown I'm wrong. Um, but maybe before uh, telling me I'm wrong, just I would suggest people look at the piece. I, I tried to make things pretty clear there. And I think while my description may have been not as clear on the podcast, if you read the piece, I think most of what I'm saying um, is pretty clearly laid out. And then... Yeah, and then on Twitter, there was some good discussion. Um, and yeah, so if anyone wants to check that out, they can 
I have a website. It's jordanmmck.com. And that's also my Twitter handle and also my Medium uh, name. Okay, perfect. But, so yeah. I'll, uh, I'll make sure to link to your article as well as your Twitter and website in the show notes. Maybe what I'll ask you to do after, after the show is if you can uh, maybe send me the link to the other article that you mentioned as well. We can put that in the notes too. Yeah, apart from that, thanks for coming on the show. Look forward to seeing uh, more on this topic and seeing how it plays out both in the market as well as the further research you're going to do. All right. Thanks very much. Okay, that was our chat with Jordan McKinney. I want to thank everyone for listening in, as well as thank the Membrane Entertainment Group for making the Membrane Labs podcast possible. If you're interested, you can learn more about Membrane at membrane.net and at membranelabs.com. For those of you who don't know, Membrane Labs is an R&D lab focused on exploring applications of blockchain technology in the music industry. We also have this regular podcast, and we host meetups about blockchain, crypto, and music a few times a month at our offices in Victoria, BC. I'll also add links to our meetups in the show notes, And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could give us a thumbs up or positive rating wherever you listen to podcasts. It's greatly appreciated and helps others with similar interests find the show. Thanks again, and until next time, be great.